Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Kirby Atwell. He served 11 years on active duty in the U.S. military, during that which time he developed a strong interest in real estate entrepreneurship and bought his first rental property in 2006. In 2011, he started his first real estate investment company focused on buying distressed properties, renovating and selling them. And then in 2017, he found success with his short-term, first short-term rental and realized that uh, non-traditional short-term rentals could be the fastest path to, for him and his family, achieving financial freedom. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Kirby. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So please give us a little bit about your background, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to get involved with your real estate investing career and short-term rentals. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I had growing up a little bit of the uh, uh, rich dad, poor dad experience in my household. So my dad was... Uh, he he was a director of a park district, which is a city role. You know, he, he was in charge of all the parks and sports programs and stuff. So very cookie cutter, you know, pension, nine to five job. And then my mom, on the other hand, um, was uh, in, in an independent insurance broker. So she owned her own insurance brokerage, which started with zero clients. She just built it from scratch, set her own hours, eat what you kill type of thing. And so they complemented each other really well. But I was always really drawn toward my mom's business. And so, uh, growing up, I kind of knew two things. I wanted to serve in the military. And then I also knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur eventually and kind of choose my own destiny, you know? And so that's, that's what I did. I went to West Point, uh, got out, uh, well, I served six years on active duty afterwards. Um, got out in 2011, like you mentioned, and, uh, started a flipping company. Cause it seemed like that was how everyone gets rich with real estate, right? They buy ugly houses and make them sexy. And that was what all the shows were, were showing at the time. And, uh, and so we did that for, for five years and realized after we flipped about 70 properties that it was a treadmill that we were never going to get off of. Um, and that's when we kind of transitioned into this, uh, this, uh, this short-term rental niche strategy. Yeah, it's uh, flipping properties is a is a very difficult business. I mean, there's some people I've met before that have like systems in place, but you've done 70 of them and you still are struggling with it. I mean, I've done them before and it was the hardest part for us was finding just having good contractors that were consistent. Mm. I mean, the work was just a just yeah. a nightmare. Every time you got a new project, it was like you had to rebuild half your team of finding stuff because people would disappear. Exactly. Yeah. And what I tell people is that I still flip. Like, I think there's a huge difference between flipping because you come across a great opportunity and building a flipping business where you have to do four to five flips a month to pay for your staff, your marketing, all the overhead, because then you start to get into these deals that you shouldn't be doing, but you have to do them because, you know, that's what your business um, it, it depends on. So, so I think flipping as an opportune type business can, can work really well. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point to make because there are people with multiple crews and to get to avoid what I was just saying is my issue. Um, they have to keep on doing deals to keep everybody employed and everybody staying with them and not going somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so it's like you it's it's the same thing with like doing the people that do funds in real estate and they have to buy so many properties. You know what I mean? They've they've allocated yeah. or they're told somebody in February that they're in, they have money left over in November and they got to buy a property. So it's a um, you know, it, it's one of those things where when you're forced to invest or force to do something, you might not be getting the best deals um, in all those different uh, times. Absolutely. So uh, why did you choose real estate going in as um, since you weren't really, you know, your family was involved, your mother had a, was working somewhere with passive income, which is uh, my uncle ran a insurance agency and he built it up from what my nice. grandfather uh, gave to him. So I know exactly the independent agency. It's a lot of work, but it is, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. So how did you kind of transition? You had the same kind of residual mindset, but get into real estate instead. Yeah, good question. So I, um, at West Point, I studied business management, um, kind of knew that I was going to do that as a path once I got out of the military, but still didn't know what kind of sector I wanted to be in. And then like so many other people, I read the gateway drug into real estate investing, which is rich dad, poor dad. And uh, that was in 2006. And so that kind of got me in the mindset of, I actually read that book, went across the street from where I was living with a couple buddies from college and bought the house that just, they just put a for sale sign in the yard. This was in 2006 when you had to buy it within 15 minutes or else it was going to be uh, gone. So so luckily I was in El Paso, Texas, where price points like never change. So uh, very stable. Um, it, it ended up working out well for me, even buying in 2006. Um, but that was my first experience. And, and at that point, I knew this is what I want to do. This, it just makes a ton of sense to me. And I'm going to do this rest of my life. That's awesome. I, I bought my first rental property in 2006 at the end of it. And uh, when I bought it again in the end of 08, it was a completely different ball game. <laughs> a lot of change. And then you're like, oh, my God, how much I overpaid for this. But yeah, no one knew yeah. that's what, you know, goes so many years and it becomes normal. So yeah. um, the funny thing is what's happening now. But the, the, the funny thing for me is I got stationed in, in uh, Hawaii after that. And that was like, oh, nine. So luckily, if those had been switched, I wouldn't have known. I would have bought in Hawaii at the peak in 06. And just lost everything. But instead, the same thing. When I bought in 09 in Hawaii, they were practically giving away properties. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very market dependent. That was, that was crazy because certain markets went way down, but you know, then they came back. Like I bought, I was buying in central Connecticut and it was pretty stable. Uh, it, you know, went up and it has really, I think some parts have hit those highs again, but if you'd bought in Florida, yes, it went way down, but it came way back up again too. So it was, you know, you just, it's, uh, someone told me it only matters three times uh, with real estate when you, the value of it, when you buy it, when you sell it, when you refinance it. Um, <laughs> That's a which good, is good point. which is an interesting strategy when you think about it. Um, so let's talk about you with your path from flipping homes and to eventually, I think it was 2017, focusing exclusively on short-term rentals. I mean, how did you how did you fall into this, and how did you know that this is going to be the better path for you? Yeah. Um, so toward the end of 2015, 16, I um, decided flipping wasn't going to be the path. Um, I was getting married and realized I wanted more passive income, more, um, uh, cash flow to support my family that I was going to build. So, um, so we started buying long-term rentals and we built up a portfolio of 24 long-term rentals. And while we were doing that, we, uh, moved from the Chicago area to Northwest Indiana and we bought this 
1970s all original wood paneling and green shag carpet house uh but it was on lake michigan and so the location was great and it had this walkout basement that was unfinished so you know i said to my wife i was like i keep hearing all about this airbnb thing and short-term rentals and i was like what if we just try it what if we you know spend an extra thirty thousand because we're rehabbing the house anyway and finish the basement, turn it into a one bedroom apartment and just try it. You know, worst case scenario, we add the equity to the home. We can use it as a long-term rental. So it seemed low risk. And we did that and we made $22,000 just the first summer on this dinky, like one bedroom apartment in our basement with no windows. And, and so I was like, I'm, I don't make $22,000 on some of my rental unit, long-term rentals the whole year. And we just made that in three months, um, on this, uh, on this basement apartment. So I realized there's something to this. And so, you know, what if we could scale it? And so we started buying other properties in the area and didn't know what we were doing at first, but then we eventually kind of came up with this thesis that if you can buy these, um, most people, when they think about short-term rentals, their mind immediately goes to the cabin in the woods, the million dollar, you know, luxury high-end vacation rental or the beachfront property. You know, that's what most people think of as, as short-term rentals with the Joshua tree, you know, desert oasis. And these can work. Right now, it's very difficult to get something like that to cash flow. Um, but for us, we were like, you know, what if we buy something really affordable where it can still work as a long-term rental in a worst-case scenario, but we're getting three times or four times the cash flow as a short-term rental? And we looked at the surrounding comps in the area that we were looking, which is an hour outside of Chicago. And we're like, you know, if, if these comps are correct and these are really renting that much, then we'll make substantially more as a short-term rental. But in a worst case scenario, we can always switch back to long-term rentals. And so that's what we started doing. And, and it just cash flowed like crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that strategy because it gives you a backup plan. And when I speak to most short-term rental people, um, investors, they don't have that backup plan. And yeah. um, a business partner of mine who is a wholesaler, he would tell me that, um, you know, he'd find properties and he's like, you sell these all day long. It'd be great locations down here in Florida and you'd be like, all day long and you can get like a retail or above retail to people that are short-term rental people. And obviously with that on their side for the buyers, short-term rental investors using that strategy, they're not going to be able to cash flow in the long term. It's only going to be if that short term and if something happens, the economy, you know, uh, regulations in that town, whatever it might be, they are now have this property that probably has less value than when they bought it. So it becomes a difficult property to, you know, have to subsidize, I guess, until you can get renters in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, um, that, that, that thing that you heard that there's only three times that the value of the property matters. Um, and I think that that is so true when it comes to this strategy, because people ask me all the time, well, the market's gone up, interest rates have gone up. D does it still make sense? Do you want to just sit on the sideline and wait it out? And I tell them, if I'm buying a property that's a three-unit property, each unit's going to be a short-term rental, and I'm buying it for $300,000, even at 20% interest rates, the, the cash flow, it's still several thousand dollars per month coming in. Net cash flow, after all my expenses, I have one that makes around $6,000 per month on a $320,000 property because it's a three unit. So in the summertime, you can rent out the whole building and it makes almost 20 or over $20,000 in some months in the summer 
and then a lot less in the winter, but it averages to about $6,000 net cash flow. And so I tell people, I'm like, you can sit out if you want, but what do I, if it goes to zero tomorrow, the market goes to zero and interest rates are at 20%, the, the fundamentals still make sense. If I'm collecting $6,000 of net cash flow, I know it's going to be worth probably double 20 years from now. So what do I care in the meantime if it's just that's it's making me financially free and not have to go get a nine to five? Yeah, no, that's that's a great I love that. That's a that's a great strategy. And I don't think people think that way. And thank God you can't log into like any type of website um, and get a really accurate picture. Not like, you know, I can log on and see what a mutual fund is or a stock. Can't really do that with a property like yours is like an income property. You can't just like log in. You can see what Zillow says about a residential property, but not they don't know what you're making on property, you know netting. So it's something that thank God, because over all those years of going through, you know, the great financial, you <laughs> your, your property was so down so much, I thought for mine, and I was like, you know, I'll probably came back around like 2014 or 2015, and they became positive again. So um, thank God for that, because you have long term debt, you don't have to really worry about it. Um, but you talked about how you you look for buying markets and um, unique markets to invest in that you're able to make long term as well, and you're kind of staying out of super vacation areas, I guess, is what you were saying, which is a great strategy. Um, is anything else that you would use when you're looking at markets other than really where you can have a dual strategy approach? Yeah, yeah, great question. So <clears throat> we have sort of a, pro a narrowing down process because it, it can be overwhelming. You can, I mean. If you Google where is the best place to buy short-term rental, you'll get probably a thousand different results because it can work for different reasons in a lot of different places. Some have great tax benefits. Some, you know, maybe you want it personal usage. Some are high appreciation. But for us, for financial freedom, which is was our number one goal, we start with the Midwest or Southeast where the properties are on sale. You know, it's just way cheaper than the rest of the country. And we go outside of all the cities. So you look, you know, down a map, the Midwest and Southeast, there's probably, <clears throat> you know, 50 or 100 decent sized cities. And so you can look within an hour drive of those. And what we're looking for is where average purchase price is relatively affordable compared to in the city. A lot of times you can find it at half, a third or a fourth average purchase price of that same city. Um, and then local draws. And if you find places like where we're at, Michigan City, Indiana, our outside of Chicago, we've got Lake Michigan in the summer. But then in the winter, we've got an outlet mall. We've got wineries. We've got a casino that's pretty big. Um, we've got uh, um, museums. Like there's hiking trails. We've got the national park. The, the I think it's the second newest national park. The, uh, um, the uh, uh, Dunes National Park. So these local draws draw people there regardless of the time of year. And then there's all the reasons that people travel just regardless, like visiting family, holidays, reunions, um, death in a family, weddings, and they'll book our place because it's cheaper than, than a hotel. So we have so many reasons why people would want to travel and stay with us. It's not just a high-end vacation, which if you own a million-dollar cabin in the woods, you're fighting everyone else who does for this limited pool of people that can afford, uh, you know, $800 a night high-end vacation. And then if that goes away, I don't know what option you have, but for us, there's so many reasons. Our occupancy has stayed strong because people stay for so many different reasons. So I feel like those are the perfect places. And then if you can combine that <clears throat> with a multi-unit property, 
so that you can, like I said, rent out the whole place, all three units, say, in the summertime when big groups travel. It's like grandparents, their adult kids, their grandkids. They don't want to book four hotel rooms. They want to stay in a big place. But, you know, the options for a place that sleeps 18 people is typically a really high-end expensive place or they can stay in ours for even at 800 bucks a night. It's still affordable if they're splitting it uh, three ways. So in 800 bucks a night, you know, you can do the math that, that adds up pretty quick on a relatively affordable property. So, um, so you get the best of both worlds, in my opinion, when you combine all those factors together. Yeah. Another great strategy is I love in the, uh, the small multifamily approach. That's something as well. You don't hear too much from short-term rentals. It's usually buying a single property. And usually most people I think are pushed into vacation because I think people, when they're buying a vacation home, they want to buy, they kind of, um, persuade themselves. It's also going to be a short-term rental. So it's a place for them. It's not, I met, I, I doubt you're staying at these three family houses and stuff that you're, that you are buying. So it completely, um, you know, there, you take a lot of emotion out of it at that point right. and you make sure that the numbers actually work. Absolutely. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it or worse? You have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation. My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. So I've stayed in dozens of short-term rentals over the years, um, you know, and different websites, all different stuff. And, you know, I know they, they have some sort of rating behind and but how do you go through and like vet cause you're going to get, you're going to find bad tenants. I imagine you have horror stories. You can tell us about it or people in your group have, and um, you know, how do you screen these tenants that are coming in? Maybe you don't have that problem with someone that's, you know, 18 people in a family, like you were saying or something, but how do you screen people going through? Is there anything you do? Um, and how does that process work? Because I, a lot of it I see is automated when they're doing these bookings. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. We, we, um, so talking to a lot of different short-term rental hosts, like if you're a responsible short-term rental host, the consensus that I've found is it's typically one to 5% of your guests are challenging. Um, so like one to five people out of a hundred that book are, are challenging. And, and when I say challenging, the things you read about online are somebody rents it and they just have a thousand people show up and just destroy the house and burn it down. You know, like those are the extreme examples, which I could almost guarantee has some absentee, uh, owner that doesn't screen at all, rents it for one night, doesn't care, just wants heads in beds. You know, that's the type of uh, situation that sets those up. But if you're a responsible uh, host, then our we have a whole bunch of checks and balances in place that kind of prevent that. You know, and so if, if somebody's looking for that, they're going to go to the lowest hanging fruit. They're going to go to the easiest property. So if we have a two-night minimum in place, well, I want to have a rager. I don't want to rent it for two nights. I just want it to go for one night. So they're going to find the one with one night. We You can turn on to where... 
people can't automatically book with you unless they have previous stays and positive reviews. Um, so that's what we turn on. They can still request to book if they're brand new to Airbnb, and then we can vet them. We can ask them why they're coming. Will, you know, are you willing to put down a deposit? We collect deposits. Um, so you can really get a good feel for who this person is. Does their story make sense? You can even, you know, look them up on social media if you want. Like there's a lot of vetting you can do to feel it out. And there's a lot of times where we just say, no, it's, you know, it's not worth the risk or that you have a previous bad review or, um, you know, but if, if they're somebody who has previous positive reviews, almost every single time they've been good guests. Um, but the one to 5% that I talked about that we've that had challenges with, it's typically, you know, somebody smokes weed in the house or something, you know, or, um, they, uh, just leave the place messy, like really messy for our cleaners, you know, and, and they don't really cause damage. So you show up there and you're like, this person was super disrespectful in the beginning. Like your instinct is you want to punish these people because they're just, they're jerks, but um, you got to get past that and say, okay, I'm going to pay my cleaners a little bit more, apologize to them, and then never have to deal with this person again. And, and it, you know, you, you move on. And so, um, so you get that rarely, most of the time, it's just great families that come and leave and everything's works out well. Yeah. I imagine most people that's not an issue. Um, the, do you ever speak to them on the phone? Uh, we do rarely. Um, we try to keep all the messaging within the messenger just so there's a history of it. But sometimes they can call us. They get our phone number and we have a, a line set up with our team. So whoever's on call, it rings on a Google voice line. So we all have the app on our phone. Whoever's on call answer, can answer at that point. That's great. Yeah, because when I used to rent apartments myself over many years of self-managing and um, speaking to potential tenants on the phone, you can... Within minutes, you understand yeah. kind of what you're dealing with. Let's just say that. You know it's a I mean? spidey sense, right? Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're just, you know, you just, how people deal with you and, or just deal with anybody in general, it just uh, tells you a lot pretty quickly on phone. You can tell by, by messages too, but it's something that uh, when you're on the phone, it's, it's kind of a dead giveaway. Um, but going into your Google voice, which is going into our next system here, uh, part is that about you with um, how you built systems and processes with your business to kind of streamline it. And, um, you know, have you utilized virtual assistants and any specific software to assist you? Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of that over the years. And <clears throat> I think one of the biggest mistakes people make getting into this is they, they want to over-systematize too soon, um, which I know sounds counterintuitive, but the, all the gurus will tell you, you know, you're worth $500 an hour and you shouldn't do any task that's below you. And I think that's a bunch of crap in, in the beginning because everybody starts with one. And how do you know to, who to hire if you don't have you've never done it yourself? And how do you know if they're doing a good job? So for us with our basement one, I mean, we did everything. We cleaned it. We did um, all the bookings ourselves, all the communication, the pricing. And we learned so much from that, so much feedback, stuff that we if we had just tried to outsource that from the start, would have cost us 25 percent to a vacation rental manager, which would have been a huge chunk. And then we wouldn't have any clue what's going on with our properties going forward. So for the first one, I recommend don't use any external apps or anything. Um, do it yourself because it's not that much work. I mean, it's a few messages a day. Maybe you can share a, a Google calendar with your cleaners and then just put cleanings on as, as bookings come in. It's really simple. And, and Airbnb, the app makes it super easy, user-friendly. 
once we got to four or five is when we felt like, okay, we have enough economies of scale. It's taking up enough of our time that it's worthwhile to bring on a team member. We brought on a backend software so that we wouldn't just use Airbnb anymore. We initially, it was IGMS. Um, didn't work out real well with them. A lot of tech issues. So we switched over to OwnerRes, which has been great. Um, and that ties in everything. So now we're on bookings.com, VRBO, Airbnb. We make one change on OwnerRes and it overrides everything. And then that links to our pricing software, which constantly adjusts pricing. I'm still in there every week tweaking stuff. I think you can't just put it on autopilot. Um, but it's only once a week across 21 properties. If if I was trying to do them all manually, that would be a full-time job there. So um, so all of it is linked together. And then Turno is what we use to manage our cleaners now, which is free with the owner res software. So we pay, I think it's $280 a month for our backend owner res software, which is pretty cheap for 21 properties. Um, and then Turno is free to manage the, the cleaners. And then it's another 100 and 20 or so, I think, a month for Price Labs, which does all our pricing. Um, and then we have a team of, it started with one military spouse. Now we've hired three military spouses through a company called uh, Powerhouse Planning. And they, they're kind of a, a virtual um, team outsourcing you know, um, company. And they just hire military spouses that are super capable. And so it's grown into three different girls. Um, we're actually going to have a fourth one here soon. Um, and uh, they trade off and they handle all the day-to-day. -day. So like today, you know, we might have 10 check-ins and they're handling all the check-ins, lining up the cleaners, lining up the handyman um, so that we're not involved in the day-to-day. -day. And it, it, you know, gives us a lot of autonomy. That's awesome. That's a great system you have in place. So it's a great mix of, you know, software and also with VAs, which is uh, an important part of it. And um, I love how everything put together. And I, I definitely agree with the self-management part in the beginning, you know what I mean, of really learning the business. And I talk to people now that maybe have property managers or started into larger apartment buildings and they've never really owned or managed their own property, you know what I mean, yeah. when they didn't. you're like, well, how do you kind of know what's happening between the property manager and the tenant if you've never really done that before? And, you know, yeah. the same thing with you. If you're dealing <laughs> between the software, you know where the issues are. If someone brings a problem to you, you can actually fix it. You don't have to like kind of guess about it or let them make the decision. So um, yeah, a lot of great, a lot of great tips there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is too, people default, they just assume, well, short-term rentals are so intensive that I just need to hire a, a vacation rental manager and they're 25% um, of your gross revenue. Typically we pay nowhere near 25% to our, our team and for our systems because they track their hours and we pay them a really nice hourly wage um, for a, a virtual team member but it doesn't add up to 25% of our gross revenue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's a great way of going about it. So I hear a lot in the news about um, some municipalities are limiting short-term rentals. And you gave us one point earlier about having the ability of like a dual approach, as you will, of going long-term, medium, probably medium-term as well, and also short-term, whatever works best. So you can, if anything, change in that, uh, in that market. I mean, how else are you protecting your downside with this possibility? Do you do any kind of... Um, review of the neighborhoods or of the local government or municipalities before you start investing? Yeah, I mean, not that the news would ever try to like mislead anyone. <laughs> um, but 
typically what you hear about in those stories, again, it's like the extreme cases and it's, and it's almost always bigger cities or mainstream markets. And so then you start to get this impression that everyone's against short-term rentals and that every municipality is like banning them. And that's just not the case. When you start to look at, especially the strategy that I just outlined. So we don't buy in the city centers because you're paying a, a premium there and because that's where typically it's most regulated. But if you go just outside, like where we're at in Michigan City, they met a couple of years ago, the, the city council, to talk about, you know, what type of regulations. And they said, you know, this is good for our economy. You know, we're a old industrial town and we want to draw in more visitors. And, you know, there's parts of town that are really struggling. And so this, you know, when people get there, they go shopping, they spend money at local businesses. Like, it's good for us. Like we're welcoming. So they they made a rule of you just have to register who you are that owns one. There's no fee. There's no inspection. They make it real simple. Um, and there's towns like that, believe it or not, that have made those rules. So that's where I recommend to target um, is a town that's already established rules that you can live within. If If they haven't made rules yet, then it's, I think it can be kind of risky because, you know, they, they could the town council could just say, we don't want it here. And then, you know, you kind of, they pull the rug out from under you, but if they've made rules, they don't typically jump around a ton, you know, not every year they're like flip-flopping. So, so I recommend targeting those. And then if you stay out of the larger cities and then you're in more business friendly States in general, like in Indiana, um, the, the, the state itself actually made a rule that the local municipalities can't restrict short-term rentals. And there's some caveats to it, but, but there's like six states that have done that between Indiana, Florida, Tennessee, um, that are, tend to be more business friendly states. And, uh, and so if you're, if you choose those to start with, it makes things a lot easier as well. Yeah. No, that's a lot of great information. Yeah. That's one thing is, uh, if I, people keep on saying, or I, I see in the news that uh, rents are being, are going down, right. And long-term rentals. And I've since never this year sent out any kind of update to our investors showing that our rents have decreased. So <laughs> it's just, um, it's, it's all that click. Must be the anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, as we're moving forward to our close here, I mean, what are common mistakes you see short-term rental uh, investors make with all your coaching with your properties? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the, the the biggest thing is is basing everything off of intuition. And I think this is the biggest challenge. I, I work with people to help them find and buy their first short-term rental. And the biggest hurdle is just getting them over the mindset of where do I want a vacation? Like where's the, the nicest place that I can buy? And that's going to perform the best. They associate like luxury with performance. And that's just not how it works. If, if you're after financial freedom. I mean, if you want to buy it and hold it and have it appreciate, I'm sure it'll appreciate well in those locations. But in the meantime, you're going to your nine to five, you know? Um, so if you want cash flow, then buying in these more affordable markets where there's a lot of different utilitarian reasons that people travel and you're just getting incredible ROI for every dollar that you invest, those are the best places. So almost everything about it is so counterintuitive um, that it's, if you go into it and just kind of go off feeling it, you, I see a lot of people kind of reach out to me after they've owned one or two and they're like, I'm not making any cash flow. It's like killing me here. Can I, can you kind of share your strategy? 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's not. We do the same thing with our properties. They're not sexy, it, but it makes money, and you're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna start a TV show after us. But it's something that um, <laughs> I mean, it it makes money and it's a consistent, and that's what you know. That's Absolutely. what works. Absolutely. Yeah. So over the years of you being a real estate investor for 17 plus years and uh, being in the military, what are some uh, main factors contributed to your success over the years? Um, I think, you know, the, the, the main thing is just continuing to, to move forward and self-educate. Like that's, it's incredible what that's I, I, like. There was no reason that I should have got into West Point. Um, it was kind of a backdoor situation where I, my fo high school football coach sent at the time, VHS tapes of my highlights. And it was just good enough to like get me into prep school. And then if I played okay at prep school and passed all the requirements, then I'd get into West Point, even though my grades weren't on par with, you know, half my class was valedictorians or salutatorians, you know? So, but I got in and then I kind of kept just like figuring it out one foot in front of the other, even though there was a lot of challenges that came up. And so that's been the, the biggest key to success for me is just keep going when, when other people kind of are okay with, like when I started my podcast, like I'm sure you experienced, maybe you didn't, but for me, it was my mom and one other guy who were my listeners for the first episode. And I was totally cool with that. A lot of people are like, well, that didn't work. I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I was okay with that for 20 episodes. And then it started to pick up and then, it, you know, so everything I've done, it's like, it did not work well in the beginning, but I just tested it and then kept going. And then over time, all of a sudden it's like, well, that's successful, but it was only successful because of all the mistakes I made along the way. Yeah. Now that's a great information. I had a mentor years back that would tell me that, um, when you're thinking quitting, that's when most other people are thinking as well. And if you push that, you're gonna be successful. And every time you think of that and you're like, oh, that, you know, that makes perfect sense. So many times you're, you're doubting what you're doing. And you're like, maybe I have to go somewhere else or change kind of tact. And, you know, once you continue on it, that's when you start seeing it because you've cut out a lot of the other people that have uh, haven't gone as far as you have. Um, so how can our listeners learn more about you, your programs, your coaching and your business? Yeah. Um, so there's a, uh, a link. If you go to Living Off Rentals, that's the name of my po uh, podcast and platform. So livingoffrentals.com forward slash start. Um, that takes you to a masterclass that I recently did that is a whole overview of my system um, and, you know, how to find, buy and finance these types of properties that can make several thousand dollars a month and they're relatively affordable. Um, so if you go there and check that out, um, it'll walk you through it. And I think that's a, the best first place to start. And then there's a link there, too, if you want to schedule a call with me. And we can talk through, you know, if it makes sense to work together, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's the, the best place. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Kirby, and uh, looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. Thanks, Charles. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30 minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode.
Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars LLC exclusively.